Hello, welcome to the Charity Impact Podcast, the in-depth podcast for people working in the charity sector, or more broadly, to achieve social impact. I'm Alex Blake, your podcast host, and I'm joined today by Alex Fox to discuss some radical alternatives to the traditional approaches to health and social care services and the way charities operate. Alex shares his experience from starting as a care assistant through to being chief executive of Shared Lives Plus and now the May Day Trust, two really interesting charities that are both doing things differently in the sectors they work in. We talk about Alex's work in developing the asset-based area model, chairing the VCSE review, and his book, A New Health and Care System Escaping the Invisible Asylum. But it's definitely worth noting that the topics we cover apply much more broadly to this conversation's relevant to anyone working for social change, not just those in the health and social care context. Before we start, just a quick reminder that we have a new way for you to engage with the podcast. Would you like to ask your own question of one of our upcoming guests? If you subscribe to our emails, we'll let you know who our upcoming guests are going to be, and you can submit your question to be asked on the podcast. So to subscribe, just search Charity Impact Podcast, go to our website, and click the banner at the top of the page to sign up. Now let's get on with today's episode. Welcome to the podcast, Alex. How are you today? Yeah, good, thanks. Thanks, Alex. Good to uh, good to take part. Great. I'm going to start off just um, asking you a little bit of background in terms of where you started in your career um, and maybe some of the key points uh, that made you start to think about things in a slightly different way. Yeah, there were definitely a couple of moments for me, I think. And so I started work as a care assistant in working residential care homes with adults with learning disabilities around uh, Leeds and um, uh, the Leeds area, North Yorkshire. That was quite a conventional sort of uh, way, way, way of working. At the end of the, the closure of long stay hospitals when people were kind of living in smaller places in the community and there'd been a real boom in companies that were taking on those contracts and I think at the time we we felt certainly we were taught that this was it was community care and um, uh, it was all about independence and particularly um, about care becoming kind of uh, person-centered and and kind of focused on um, people achieving goals. I did that for a few years and then I started working with young carers and um, then with uh, in policy around family carers of all ages. And I think starting to work with families was one, one moment which changed things for me. Um, it allowed me to see the, the system, the care and support system from the perspective of parents and brothers and sisters and family members. And I think uh, in my uh, first jobs, there'd been this sense, perhaps not always spoken, that that we were the professionals and that families were sometimes sort of part of the problem um, because they they didn't understand these new ideas that that we were being trained in around behaviour management, sort of managing challenging behaviour. And it was when I started working with families that actually um, I started to see things quite differently and it started to feel to me that actually maybe there was some blaming of families going on and um, uh, actually I was very young, had very little training, didn't really know very much. And um, when I moved on to a new job, it was going to be the families that were were still there and who had often um, been providing the best quality of life and support, sometimes with very very few resources um, before people had, had moved into paid services. 
So I think that that sort of challenged some of the things that I'd been taught. And then what really kind of blew everything I'd been taught out of the, the water was um, uh, stumbling across the shared lives sector and uh, going to work for an organisation now called Shared Lives Plus, uh, which was the, the representative body for um, everybody who's working in shared lives. And Alex, sorry, just um, before we go on, it's probably worth just giving a, a brief sort of description of what shared lives is. Lots of people still don't know about shared lives. It's a regulated care sector. There's a service in every area of the country now, pretty much. There's a, hardly any gaps. And it involves people becoming um, approved as shared life carers. And then once they're approved by their local programme to be a shared life carer, they're then matched with an adult who needs support. Um, and when a good match is found, the adult either visits their chosen shared life carer regularly um, for short breaks and day support, or they move in with them and they, they live as part of the, the family with that uh, with that carer. So it's a really unusual model in adult support because um, it, shared life carers are trained and they're paid. They, they are professionals, but um, they're also just living ordinary family life. And that seems so different to me to everything that I'd remembered learning in as a care assistant to residential care, which is all about keeping your, you know, your professional boundaries, keeping your, your, yourself and your personal life, your home life separate. This wasn't sort of a, a although it's small, it was, this wasn't a tiny form of care. There are, um, something like 10,000 shared life carers supporting about 15,000 people. Um, and every year the regulators, um, the Care Quality Commission, said that it was better than all other forms of social care. So on the face of it, it sounded like it was risky and it was sort of doing what you didn't have the same sort of level of kind of formality that, that services rely on to give them that sense of safety. And yet um, it was um, had far fewer safeguarding issues than other services and people were were basically happier and I go and visit households and rather than them talking about all the things we talk about in social care which are things about sort of risk and quality and outcomes they were talking about sort of love and fun and all the kind of uh, messiness and ordinariness of, of family life um, whatever that looks like in all that kind of diversity that's why I um, why I, I wrote a book some years after that. It was trying to sort of um, get my head around how how this hugely successful approach could be sort of hidden right in the middle of mm -hmm. of, of social care, which often isn't seen as being very successful, and, and why um, all public services weren't behaving much more like shared life carers do. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting one, isn't it? Why it's it seems to work so well, and it's not scaled as you say. It's not tiny. There are thousands of um, shared lives carers, but um, it doesn't seem to have scaled. You know, in comparison to the kind of traditional social care model, um, and it certainly seems instinctively like a nicer way for people to live, doesn't it? For a, you know, someone with a, a learning disability, for example, to rather than going into a residential care facility to be living in a, a home with a family and and being part of that sort of regular family life, um, instinctively certainly seems like it's going to um be a better quality of life. Um yeah, I think, it's yeah, not... as, as you say, I suppose that you you would imagine that the risk is around the safeguard inside, isn't it? How do you how do you avoid 
the kind of potential situations where where people might want to take advantage of of people that are vulnerable um so presumably that that's through that kind of initial process of approving the carers and and then the overseeing it somehow yes so um it, it I, in in the book i tried to look at what is it that 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 makes this work and could you apply that way of thinking and acting to all kinds of um, particularly long-term support services mm. and I felt that it was partly in that recruitment so people when I was recruited in to be a, a care assistant in in residential care I had an interview I think I met the um, the men that I'd be working with um, and then I started and so they didn't know that much about me um, and that sector often hires people pretty quickly and then loses them pretty quickly mm. Um, and uh, so whereas in in shared lives, there was an approval process that could take weeks or months to really get to know somebody at a much deeper level. And then um, having recruited people that the service could put a greater level of trust in, that then allowed them to create these roles where people were much more autonomous and much more personally responsible. But I think the other key sort of process in there was matching. So people weren't just lumped together. It wasn't up, ultimately up to the service who supported whom. It was um, about both the individual and the, the, the shared life carer and their households um, feeling like they, uh, they were a good match, like they clicked. So people were working with people that they were comfortable with. Um, and then I think the, the, the other sort of, factor that made it work and also made it safer than than some services um was that it's people were out there in the community and the model was based on the idea that people would be making friends they wouldn't just be supported by that individual shared life carer they often kind of became part of a, an extended family um they get to know people so i just remember talking to Andy and James. So uh, James, having lived in an epilepsy centre for a, a, quite a number of years, um, partly because of his um, his health needs, he um, was considered to sort of have complex support needs. And there was lots of things around sort of risk in his care plan. But he, when he describes that period, he, he talks about it as being mainly just boring. He didn't do very much. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a very good quality of life. And then he moved in with Andy and his family. Um, uh, Andy had been a teacher. And um, uh, when Andy asked him what he wanted to do, what his, what his goals were, he said friends and a job. And um, the household just set about trying to achieve those two goals, really, friends and a job. And they... Uh, James had lots of jobs and voluntary works and paid work. Him and Andy ended up starting their own social enterprise together around independent living. James had loads of friends. And I always remember Andy would say now when he's out and about in the in his local community without James, people always want to know where James is. And yeah. often it was just he was busy doing something else because he had a full life. But um, that sense that there is lots of people looking out for you contrasted really sharply, I think, with some you, you get some very formal very expensive services but people are completely shut away they're completely reliant on a staff team and if that staff team goes wrong then um in that sort of institutional shut off setting then things can go really wrong as we've seen in some of the really horrible abuse scandals uh and so there's something protective about being in a a much smaller um more household family kind of setting and, and being out in the community
yeah, I think there's a there's a flexibility there as well, isn't there? And that those those big structures have you know Wednesday morning it's this type of activity, whereas in a family setting, you, it's you know what do you want to do? When do you want to do it? Um, yeah, they they yeah. could do what they that they could do things that you just couldn't do in a service. So a couple of things, so something that, that that I came across once or twice was um, families saying things like, um, oh yeah, he's learned to ride a bike since he uh, came to uh, to live with us. And I remember one or two families saying it was my kids that, that taught him and mm. you can't risk assess for somebody's kids teaching somebody to ride a bike. Yeah. Um, but it is also that's how most of us learn to ride a bike we don't go on a bike riding course somebody teaches us and we fall off a couple of times and and then we get the hang of it and so it was freeing people up to act in that much more kind of natural way whereas um uh the 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 i the the practice of trying to avoid risk becomes a massive risk to people uh in services because we we end up keeping them we're trying to keep them safe from danger and we keep them safe from life and I remember when you were at Shared Lives Plus, uh, you were involved in, I think you were leading the VCSE review um, in health and social care. And I can never quite remember the, the title of the review properly. Um, but I know that was uh, looking at some of those ideas around co-production and co-commissioning. Um, can you can you share some of the uh, some of the sort of findings around that and what, what you took away from that sort of process? Yeah, you can still find the report. It's a few years ago now. It's called the Joint VCSE Review, um, and we produced an action plan. Um, uh, and it was it was commissioned by Department of Health and Social Care, Public Health England, NHS England, and it, it was produced in partnership with lots of different kinds of social enterprises and charities of all different sizes and their representatives. And uh, it was tempting for the main message to be that councils and the NHS should give charities more money mm -hmm. but we also knew that wasn't going to kind of make much difference or land very well so what what we did instead after talking to charities was we we argued for that idea that actually public money is is all of our responsibility and we should be uh, that, that councils and the NHS should be sharing that responsibility for spending public money ultimately with with citizens and with communities and in order to do that you have to work with good uh, voluntary and community organizations because otherwise you 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 miss out a whole section of the community those people who aren't um uh, who are often labeled as sort of hard to reach but actually who just aren't uh, people don't don't go go out to reach um so we talked about um, the need to for health and care services to be co-commissioned and co-designed with two groups of people. Um, one is the the people that make the most use of those services, and the other is the the groups and the and communities that are most excluded from those services, most likely to miss out. Um, and we said you can't do that as a council or the NHS unless you work with voluntary and community organisations, because um, while there's lots of issues around the voluntary sector and equalities and inequalities, the statutory sector has no real track record of co-producing um, its services with those people. And it's that it's that co-design that makes the difference, because if we carry on designing 
services um, centrally and in a top-down way and with uh, kind of a, as a one-size-fits-all, then actually we know that that, si you know, that one-size-doesn't-fit-all-it-fits um, those people who have the simplest and least kind of complex needs or, or lives, but also those people who find it easiest to go and ask for help and find help. Um, and often those services aren't um, culturally appropriate and accessible. So all sorts of people miss out. And that's why we've got all of these inequalities in health and care. And, you know, that's you can see that right the way through all kinds of services, like, for instance, the huge um, disparity um, in uh, your the support you'll get and the outcomes you'll expect if you are a black person with uh, mental health problems as opposed to a white person those you know those statistics are really should be really shocking but we've just sort of they've always been like that and they they kind of get accepted and we, we said we don't need to accept that we could do things differently yeah um and the so that that review and, and report was what maybe five years or so ago now yeah um, yeah so how how was that received um by the sort of statutory sector at, at sort of local and or national level how was that received and obviously you you put in place an action plan it'd be interesting to sort of reflect on how that was taken forward and, and maybe what what the sort of developments have been since then and, and where you think we are now with some of that because i know often it's the case that you know, some of the actions get taken up and some don't and some, you know, that get taken so far and then there are changes in government or changes in other external circumstances that have an impact as well. Um, so what 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 do you think have been the sort of developments over the last five years or so? No, nowhere near as much as I would have liked. Um, so, <laughs> Always um, the case. Yeah, the, I mean, I think the we... we I talked to people in some local areas, including um, Greater Manchester, who drawn on it quite heavily mm. for um, their work between the statutory and voluntary sector. So that was probably the most sort of satisfying was hearing from areas that had used that model. Um, in terms of central government, they, you know, they, they welcomed it. We we kind of briefed the minister and Simon Stevens and all of those those people, and they were warm to it. But in terms of I, I guess because we were asking for, or we were setting out quite a, a cultural shift. Um, I would like to think that that fed into some of the policies that, you know, say NHS England, you know, has developed a whole raft of policies around um, uh, public participation and, and empowerment. And I'd, you know, like to think that we had some influence on that, but um, it's, um, uh, I guess if if you're not calling for a sort of a, a simple change in the law or or yeah. some funding, um, you know, a particular funding stream, it's, it could be pretty hard to see whether whether what you've called for has happened. And I think that um, it was it was kind of a learning experience for me certainly because I felt we we had these kind of these good messages that were welcomed that had lots of sector support. And then you sort of naively expect that lots of people are going to get excited and do things. But then, of course, the machinery of government has moved on. And sometimes the government has kind of changed or moved on. And certainly, you know, ministers come and go. So actually getting that kind of change landed is pretty hard. Um, 
the, we, we also um, put together the recommendations for what became the Health and Wellbeing Alliance, um, which was a funded program of, of partnership between voluntary organisations and government. Again, seems to you know kind of be impactful in its way. So there was that, I guess, that was tangible. I think it it would require a government that was much more kind of aligned with the voluntary sector than I think certainly the current kind of uh, iteration of government is. It's you know it's there's there's a huge amount of scepticism about the voluntary sector. Um, and particularly about national voluntary organisations, I think, is kind of, you know, I think a, a real barrier to tackling some of these inequalities. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's, as you say, it, the, it's really difficult to measure what the what the impact has been and, and what, what the difference has been. I think, as you say, the that review and, and a number of other sort of voices and reports and things will have been pushing for some of those sorts of changes to a, uh, more of a co-produced kind of approach to services and so on and I think we've we've seen a shift as you say you can definitely point to things and say yep there, there have been improvements there and, and maybe they've not been uh, not gone as far as you would like and you know not been um, taken up to the level that you like you can you can always kind of see some local authorities you know point to greater manchester i think maybe plymouth or another kind of case study that have done interesting work so you you see it happening but it's not quite the kind of the complete rollout that you would like to see hi please excuse this brief interruption i'd love for more people in our sector to hear from our guests so i'd like to ask a favor of you please if you're enjoying the podcast, please could you promote the show in whatever way suits you. This could be giving us a rating and following us on your podcast player, or following us and sharing posts on social media, or telling your contacts about us by email. Any of those would be a great help and greatly appreciated. And most importantly, thank you for listening. You've written and, and spoken about an asset-based system, um, so I suppose building on on that work, looking at creating a new asset-based system and and in, embedding that. Uh, and so I suppose that's that was covered in your in your book, escaping the invisible asylum. But then also the that paper I read, meeting as equals, I mm -hmm. think was it with NCVO and RSA. Yeah. So could you share some of that thinking with people? Well, the publishers made made me call the uh, the book a new health and care system as its headline, but the subtitle is "Escaping the Invisible Asylum," which is the thing that I would I would have called it if uh, <laughs> left to my own devices. But it sounded a bit too much like a, a thriller and not enough like a book about <laughs> service reform. But the idea of this kind of a invisible asylum came from this feeling that we 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 think we've closed the the workhouses and the the asylums and the institutions and that we that us, we've got these community services now but the that sort of moving from having worked in one of those community services through to seeing people do things completely differently made me feel that actually the the thinking that institutional thinking and that idea of separating people into them and us was still hugely kind of deeply woven into all the way that we do public services in this country and it was just that we were so immersed in it it had become invisible to us and it feels to me like we need to be able to take a step back sort of look at things through the perspective of what we would want for ourselves and for people we love and what what a good life looks like rather than what we think a good service looks like and when you do that you start to see that 
we a lot of the things that we do to keep services running in the way that they run harms people or it harms some people you know i think most public services do a a pretty good job for most people most of the time but for lots of people particularly those people who really kind of need a lot of support and have a lot of uh, involvement with public services um that harm can become cumulative and it can kind of snowball so the idea of an asset-based or strengths-based services trying to tackle one of the things that that we do wrong so one of the things we do wrong is we we people are offered a service because of what they need because of some need or problem that they have and that's the sort of common sense there but but then services become uh only able to see that need or that problem and they lose sight of the rest of the person and that becomes a problem for the service and for that person um because then everything becomes about managing a very particular risk or issue and it stops that person from taking charge of their own life. And it, it, this isn't about ignoring what people need, but it's about being able to see the whole person and not losing the person. And I felt for a while that there is a kind of paradox in the way that we assess people's needs, which is the more that we understand people's needs, the less we understand their strengths. And uh, we need to be able to, to, to see and respond to both of those things. And that's why I moved to work for Mayday Trust um, a little over a year ago. So um, Mayday Trust is an organisation that's tried to kind of embody that that idea of strengths-based or asset-based working. It was a traditional support and housing organisation in the homelessness sector. But my predecessors managed to, to carry out a listening exercise with people in a way that allowed them to say, and for the charity to hear, that what the charity was doing wasn't working and actually had become part of the problem for people because uh, in theory, the services were all about um, moving on and transition and um, uh, kind of moving off off the streets and into um, back into kind of full citizenship. Um, but actually, people were stuck in those services for years. And that's partly because those services were segregated. They were just for people with a particular set of needs and they become obsessed by those people's needs and problems and by the idea that charities or services can fix people. And that was stopping people from taking charge of their own lives and sometimes just from living their own lives. So what's unusual about May Day is having heard those messages is completely decided to tear up everything it was doing and start again. So it exited all of its um, traditional services over a number of years and looked for uh, a way of working with people that would be strengths-based and led by the person. Um, so over a number of years, we've developed a coaching approach um, called the PTS Response, which combines some uh, asset-based approaches in a way which I think is probably unique. I don't think there's any one thing that the coaches do, which is unique in itself, but I think the combination is. So it starts with just forming a relationship with the person as the first goal rather than having a set of outcomes or tasks as a first goal and that's quite an unusual way to work generally services start with an assessment and a set of goals but our belief is that for people particularly those people that have been kind of lost within the system or harmed by the system actually having a different kind of relationship is the starting point for things changing and from that that allows people then to look beyond services so there is a connecting reconnecting and community development role for for coaches and their colleagues in helping people to build a life outside of services there's the the one-to-one -one coaching that we sort of 
drew on things like sports coaching or executive coaching, building up people's confidence and skills. And then there's also a challenging and changing and co-producing something better aspect to the work. So part of our belief is that people, even those people, perhaps especially those people who are labelled as having complex needs, severe and multiple disadvantage, all of these kind of labels that people get when they've in our view, just been let down by lots and lots of services. They're seen as being a person who has all of these problems. And part of our belief is that actually some or sometimes all of those problems are actually located in the systems around them. So that means it's not just a question of that person changing. It's a question the systems around them have got to change. So coaches will work with people to help them try and form a different kind of relationship with lots of other services around that could be health services or housing services. Um, could be about challenging things that aren't working for particular communities. So my colleague working in um, an area of London has been working with a group of black women who have all had poor experiences of um, mental health services where there's been a very standard offer. They've sometimes been through that offer several times, but it's just not what they need or want. So it's not helping them. It's costing the NHS, lots of money each time. It's not getting them anywhere. And so what we're trying to do is help them design something that would actually meet their needs and be what they want. So it's about sort of turning that idea of who knows best on its head, mm. uh, being led by the person and uh, helping people look beyond services. And in that example, when they're, look, when they're trying to design a service that works for them, is that that they're, they're working with the charity to come up with something different to do or is that influencing the NHS service to work with them in a different way? Yeah it's both really so we try to be a bridge between the individual the community and the service system because those people can't just ignore or you know kind of live completely outside of, of services they are people that often that need and are in contact with services but they need their services to be more shaped around them and with them so um, the work varies enormously, and it's one of our challenges as a charity is describing what it is, because the whole point is that it's sort of different for every person. Mm. I think that idea of starting with relationships first and then going from there is, is kind of quite core to all of the work. But it has to be that mixture of personal change and system change. And by system change, that can be something very small and, and local or even personal to that person. So it could be the way that their GP surgery treats them or thinks about them or some some kind of form that's kind of you know some uh, process that isn't working for them but then also um so in that area of london we're working with the icb the the health board integrated care board and uh, with the council to try and feed the learning from those different kinds of conversations and relationships back into developing a different kind of strategy particularly for those people that they describe as having severe and multiple disadvantage. So we draw on the human learning systems approach. We're part of that network. So human learning systems is the idea that... So I'll just jump in to yeah, ask sure. a quick question before we move on to, on to that. Uh, so the uh, the sort of influence in the service, but I'm just interested in uh, like the response that you get, you know, because obviously that's the, the main challenge is that those services are so rigid and it's kind of like you have this problem. We want you to achieve this outcome. And here's the kind of way that our service works. You know, you're going to do X number of sessions and so on. And it's that's that's the challenge. So when you... When you say to those service providers and commissioners, 
that's not working for this person. Can we do this? And can you, you know, can your service do it in this way instead? How how positive are those responses in terms of them saying, yeah, sure, you know, we can do something else, or saying, you know, this is the way our system works. Tough. And and then at that sort of strategic level, I suppose it's more nuanced, isn't it, in terms of influencing that longer term strategy and way of working. But in in those sort of individual instances what what are the sort of responses that you get the responses we get from the services that we're in touch with around that the person is is very mixed so on the one hand people are under huge pressure they often feel they're very constrained by a role which doesn't give them much leeway to do the things they'd like to do and they are often working in environments where there's constant complaints and dissatisfaction and people have that sort of feeling that they're not doing the job they want to do so that's you know that makes it really difficult when Somebody's saying we want to do this very differently. On the other hand, everyone knows and, and most people will, will agree out loud that the service system doesn't work at the moment. And it's partly that's about money. You know, they our, our services have been starved of money and none of this is an argument for any further cuts. We need to invest in our public services. But we know from the last time there was a big investment in public services under Blair and Brown, that some things got better and some things didn't. So some things are quite fixable with money, um, particularly reactive services and kind of medical services, but things which are much more embedded in social issues, complex lives, inequalities, poverty, community, those things can't just, you can't just chuck money at them and get, and, and make them get better. Actually, sometimes services can even make those worse as you know which is essentially what people were telling us at Mayday when we decided to change what we do so the coaches have a really difficult role in that they are they they need to work with all of those other services and not just be somebody who's kind of shouting at people and getting frustrated and angry but they do they also do need to be the kind of grit in the oyster and I think the way we try to get through that is it's about supporting the individual we're working with to express their views to get the results and the changes that they want and if it can come from those individuals that's much more powerful than it coming from us but that can be quite long and complex work because people have often completely lost their confidence and their sense of self if they've been sort of lost in in service land for a really long time so it is it's difficult work but the changes that that creates not just for that individual but the ways in which it can improve services for, for for lots of other people as well make it worthwhile because otherwise our services particularly those that are kind of some of the the most challenging the crisis services they they're just on this endless kind of merry-go-round or you know there's there's more and more yeah. demand less and less ability to to fix root causes and somebody you know something's got to give if we want that to improve yeah. And in terms of the sort of public sector budgets, the uh, the sort of acute crisis services are the ones that are more the most expensive, aren't they? So actually, although there's some requirement for investing in the system as well as changing it, actually in the longer term, it would save save money because if if you can prevent those sort of crisis situations in the first place or at, le- at least have crisis responses that work so people are going through it once rather than continually going around on this merry-go-round it'd actually be a lot more effective more cost effective but yeah the endless challenge of getting 
getting um, government to invest in things now to make uh, savings in the long term beyond the current election cycle is uh, one of the issues, isn't it? But I, I cut you off to ask some detailed questions, but you were just going to go on to human learning systems. So I'd definitely love to hear some more about that. So I think as part of a strengths-based approach, at its heart, it needs to be a learning approach at every level. So there is a simplistic version of strengths-based working, which just says, we're going to try and find things that you're good at and help you to do them. Um, but that could ignore somebody's needs and it could just be what the organisation thinks is important. So it's got to be led by the person and it's got to involve learning from that person. And that's true of system change as well. So we're part of the human learning systems network and we buy into that idea that the, the big kind of organizational shift that we're looking for is organizations becoming learning organizations. So having learning loops where you are uh, learning from the people that you work with and feeding that back into change at every level. Um, so it's quite a simple idea, but it's quite a radical idea because generally we measure public service organizations on the achievement of outcomes, for instance, and on process. And we may, we do a lot to measure outcomes and impact. And ultimately, that is what we want to be judged by. But we, if if we are led by those those measurements and whether or not somebody is achieving a particular outcome at any one time, that gets in the way of being led by that person and it gets in the way of learning. So um, one of the principles that we subscribe to is the idea that, yes, we do need to know a lot. We need lots of kind of stories as well as data and insight into what's going on. But that's you use that that data and evidence for learning and change, not for control. So I think organisations that are do a lot of measuring can also often be quite micromanaging and quite controlling because they they have a set of outcomes they're measuring and they want you to show that you're, you're, you're achieving those any one time. Our belief is that uh, you can, actually, if you're learning a lot about what's, what's changing and what the impact is, that can allow you to give people much more freedom at the front line. Because as long as we are, as an organisation, achieving those outcomes with the group of people we're working with, actually, we don't need then to, to know uh, or to to challenge every single decision that somebody makes or to, to kind of manage at the level of the day-to-day -day work with every individual. But that's quite a cultural shift. So it means recruiting people who are brilliant at reflection and learning, who are really curious, who don't need that kind of control because they're doing that for themselves and for each other. And it suggests moving towards um, self-managing teams and much less top-down power structures. So again, it comes down to that idea, idea of um, recruiting people differently in order to create much more autonomous roles and then enabling people, creating a framework for those people to work in, which enables them to, to achieve the outcomes and the impact, which is very different from a traditional service. Yeah, I find this really interesting. So I think in, in some ways it feels like a really subtle shift and in others quite radical because it it's and there's a really nice term that I'm not going to remember properly from the the reports from Collaborate, I'm sure, um, which says it's about improving mm. rather than proving. And it's the idea of like using that that evaluation work 
to think about the best way, you know, to understand the difference you're making, but also to understand where you can make improvements rather than doing evaluation for the sake of reporting back to a funder to say, you know, this here's the measurement of the impact and kind of proving that you've done what you said you were going to do. And I think it it applies to the sort of voluntary funding side of things as well as the the public service sort of um, funding so it's a it's a similar issue in the sort of grant funding and philanthropic funding environment and, and i think we're seeing some of the shift in language away from sort of monitoring and proving of impact to that sort of learning and evaluation and, and using it to really um think about how you best meet the needs of the people you support and, and ties in with the increased understanding and demand for services that are and and all and charities organizations that are really embedded in their community and and you know the terms lived experience isn't it having people with lived experience involved in the design of the services but it's the same as that kind of co-production and co-design idea that's been around for quite a long time uh, so it's good to see good to see that there's more emphasis around that i think from the funder perspective as well yeah, it is. It's it's a as you say, it's sort of subtle and it's radical. People often focus on the mechanisms of sort of self-management and it it is very much about mm. who who you recruit and how people work. And I was that was the argument I made in the meeting as equals paper, which was asking could charities, particularly large charities, meet the people they worked with as equals, or was there always going to be this power mm. differential that would get in the way of uh, a really human response and i was arguing in that that how we work as charities is in, as is as important as what we do at any one time because we can't just be calling for social change or doing things in the work that we think will improve lives for people in society we've got to be embodying the social change that we're calling for and there is a radicalism at the heart of in in the history of charities you know charities started off as radical organizations i think and that radicalism hasn't always sat easily both with government but also with some big charities themselves where when they've become of a size that they need to be really big businesses with kind of you know lots of a, a really a real focus mm. on on kind of corporate governance you've then got to do that in a way which doesn't lose sight of the mission otherwise you just keep feeding the machine but the machine is a good service, not a good life. Mm. And I think it, there's a mix, isn't there, in terms of the sector, I think, of the the more radical side of the, the organisations that have come out of sort of either campaigning organisations or sort of grassroots-based organisations, but then there are a significant proportion as well that come more from the sort of Victorian model of philanthropy and charity of, of very much saying, you know, we're the... The experts and the people with money that are, you know, helping the poor and the needy, and that you know, there's a lot of that still there, isn't there? And I think there's a, a, a sort of culture of needing to win the funding in that you need to show that you're the experts and you know what you're doing and what you're doing works, and that you have this model that is effective and successful. So that that sort of conflicts with that concept of being curious and learning and constantly improving and adapting doesn't it so i think as that sort of culture has crept in 
the as funding has become more and more competitive over the years so i think that's that's one of the difficult things to to overcome isn't it and that's the it's that cultural bit isn't it and that's that sort of organizational levels and then as you say it's the recruiting and supporting people into your organization to think in a different way the more that people can learn from the people they're working with and and have that you know being on equal footing rather than being you know we're the professional experts and you're the people in need um, and you know we know what's best for you and shift into really having that curiosity yeah um i i agree and i think the our charities and our public services began with the poor laws i mean that's where i started the book sort of tracing it back this original idea of separating people between citizens and people who needed support and there was a mixture of help and punishment in there and i don't think we've ever fully escaped that kind of toxic mixture it's why you know an asylum is a place of safety but also became a place of danger um for people so and i think the this sort of shift from a, um a focus on delivery and the 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 new public management approaches of blair and brown which essentially said if you just organize public services and charities really well and manage them really well and measure measure what they're doing really well that's what's needed you know we'll fund them properly and we'll manage them really well and everything will be fixed but and as i say that that works i think for most of the people most of the time but what you tend to do is measure averages and so you might find that on average yes that works for the people you're working with you can show a so much percentage point increase but what that hides is the people for whom it doesn't work and for whom it's actually harmful and part of the um the thinking behind human learning systems which we subscribe to is that where people's issues and lives are complex which let's face it is probably most of us it's not a service that creates an outcome it's a system working with that person that creates an outcome so if it's the whole system that generates an outcome there's no point in doing what often happens, which is saying to a often really small charity or really small project, we'll give you this money, but you've got to prove that you're going to have, you're going to shift the dial on this, you know, hospital admissions or how quick, you know, hospital discharges or some sort of big meaty target like that. But for the people they're working with, that's not an outcome that any one service, let alone a small service is going to create. It's the system as a whole that creates that. So what can you measure instead? And the idea is that actually what you want to measure is the practice and the culture of the organization delivering it. Because if it's an organization that's that's good at tailoring what it does, good at learning, good at innovating, is always improving, then that's an organization that's going to be spending public money really well and as effectively, and it will be having an impact on the rest of the system. Um, and that's actually better than, a, you know, a uh, on average improvement which hides lots of inequalities in it yeah um, and i think it it goes without saying but it's worth saying again that uh, these things cost as well there's an organizational cost to doing this sort of learning work really well which isn't necessarily at the front line you need you need some of that sort of infrastructure there to be able to do it which again lends itself to sort of unrestricted funding from grant funders and 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 proper levels of funding from from commissioners. So it's probably always worth stating again. For people who want to 
find out more about some of these ideas. Are there some resources you can recommend for both sort of further reading, but also anything that might help organizations want that want to take some practical action in terms of whether the it's the work they're doing in their services or whether it's funders wanting to find out more? We've tried to put most of the kind of the really key foundational ideas um, up on the, the Mayday Trust website. Uh, so they are sort of there to look at. Uh, and obviously we offer lots more support to organizations behind that. But we published a model for uh, asset-based or strengths-based areas with the Think Local Act Personal Partnership and the Social Care Institute for Excellence in November last year. So there's a paper called What Next for Strengths-Based Areas, which sets out some of the practicalities and includes some things like the behaviour changes that you'd look for in an organisation or an area, but also looking at um, what a strengths-based service does differently at every stage from through to kind of referral assessment planning and then leaving services and there's more of that in the new system alliance so the the new system alliance is a partnership with um, us at mayday in england and our colleagues platform a radical mental health organization in wales and homeless network scotland and then there were about five or six hundred organizations and people um, who are part of the new system alliance again there's quite there's some resources there and we're building a directory of strengths-based work to try and give people a clearer idea particularly funders and commissioners who are attracted to this work but it's it can be a confusing world and it's ironically for you know it's developed its own jargon even though it's all supposed to be about kind of things being clearer and more more you know more people shaped so we're trying to kind of bring that kind of that clarity. Mm. I wrote an article recently for New Local with Professor Chris Fox at Manchester University, who is also my brother, how we lost sight of the point of public services and what we can do about it. And that was setting out an argument for realigning all of our public services around strength-based thinking that goes into some more detail. And there's an academic journal article, hopefully on the way behind that as well. Great. Okay. We'll share all of the sort of links to those resources and things on the webpage when this goes live. I think that that is a, a good point to to wrap up. Is there anything, any final points that you wanted to share? Any asks of the listeners or anything at all? Um, I think we've covered plenty. I'm sure you'll need to edit all of that down a bit and I'm, my answers are always tend towards the long-winded. So I hope you can make some use of that, but and no, um, I think that's really interesting. Um, I, I think, yeah, minor editing. Um, and I think, yeah, people will find, get a lot a lot from that conversation and certainly will put the resources so people that do want to get further into the detail um, can go away and do some reading and, and, and certainly look up some of those, those sort of um, details in those resources in terms of how to take action. I mean, if, um, if I was going to leave one parting shot, um, it would be it would be that we need to think much more deeply about power as charities mm. and not just about our role in challenging the power of government or councils, but actually the power that we hold ourselves. Um, because if you follow all of these ideas to their logical conclusion, um, there's a question, I think, about whether the charity governance model is the model that we will um, want in the uh in the future because does it 
at the moment give enough ownership and power to the people, the communities that we aim to serve? Um, and uh, are we uh, as representative in our in our teams and also particularly in our leadership of those groups and communities that we aim to serve? So the charity of the future, you would expect to have a workforce that um, comes from and it represents the same communities that it supports um, because that's part of disputing power is how we dispute paid work um, and uh, as well as who's in charge and who makes the decisions. So I think we are only just starting to ask ourselves those really uncomfortable questions that you know might start with why is a sector that's all about social change and equality um, uh, so still so much run by um, people like you and I who are middle class um, white men uh, who and, and why isn't there more diversity on gender and race and ethnicity uh, and um, and class and poverty as well so you know why why is there such a often such a, a gap between the people who are looking for support and the people who are trying to offer support and again it all comes back to that question of can you create organizations which people can genuinely meet as equals yeah it definitely seems like it's um something that's higher on the agenda um i know it's going to be heavily down to sample bias but i know in a lot of the conversations i've had recently for the podcast it's been i suppose it was the main theme of the chat i had with derek bardwell mm -hmm. um but in a, a number of conversations it's come up and I, 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 yeah definitely sample bias there but i think looking at the sort of sector news um there's a, a sort of regular flow of reports and commentaries around the issue of power um, and power within the sector and, and diversity and inclusion within the charity sector and the way that we operate. Um, and I suppose since, I suppose it's since the, both the, the pandemic and, and the George Floyd murder, um, I think that really raised the profile. And since then, the profile seems to have stayed high. Mm -hmm. And obviously it takes a bit of time for the, the change to then happen after after the profile has been risen, but it certainly seems that it's it's higher on the agenda. I don't know whether that's just because it's something I'm paying attention to, um, but it, it you know from looking at the sector news, it seems like it's something. Certainly, four years or so ago, I don't you know if you looked at the news reports and stories from that from 2019, I don't think it was being covered really. And now it seems to be a fairly regular occurrence that people are talking about it. I think we've and had a series of, of kind of no turning back moments um, where people's consciousness have been raised. And again, sort of this idea that we could kind of be immersed in something that's wrong, but not even see it. And as soon as you start mm. to see it, it's impossible to unsee it. Mm. Uh, so I think that we we could be approaching, you know, some really radical changes, some really radical moments in our sector, which we should be excited about because... You know, that's what we're supposed to be here for is is real change not just um managing resources well you know we need to do that bit as well but actually the thing that that got us excited about joining the charity sector if, in most cases was real change so yeah. let's embrace it yeah the governance question is really interesting as well i definitely need to do a sort of governance specific episode um but yeah i think that that question of is it 
is it the governance model and structure or is it the the about who's on the board because obviously you know the stats are terrible in terms of like 92 percent of trustees are, are white you know there's most boards are all white um heavily um skewed towards old white middle class or upper class man um a real lack of diversity across the sector so is is it just a case of having more diverse and inclusive boards and and the most important thing probably be being about the the representation being um linked to the issue that the charity is working on um or or is there a structural issue there in terms of that sort of board model um not working for more structural reasons yeah, I, I think certainly more representation on boards would help uh, and would make a massive difference. But then you are still left with the challenge, particularly for organisations that have grown beyond the sort of small grassroots, that that board is there to service the organisation mm. and the organisation has its own demands. You know, it's legal. I'm on a board of a good, quite quite large service provider and something we wrestle with as a board is how you um, you keep that show on the road and keep you know in a really difficult financial environment, um, whilst also finding space as a board for innovation and for for ideas around social change. And it's just hard, you know, it's difficult, which isn't to say it can't be done. Um, and I think probably for me, the, the way through it, probably it, it may not be a governance change. It probably comes back to the self-managing teams idea, the idea that you can have radically devolved structures. You've still got an organisation there, but you've got a much less top-down power structure working there, um, which I think then changes the focus of, of everyone in, at every level. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, I think... That that is now an excellent place to wrap up. <laughs> That's an interesting little uh, a, a diversion at, at the end there. Um, so thanks for your time, Alex. Thanks very much for coming on. Thanks very much for, for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Charity Impact Podcast. Please give us a rating and follow us on your podcast player or on Twitter, LinkedIn or Facebook. And if you think this episode would be of interest to someone in your network, please do share the webpage on social media or by email.